So really, that gives me a chance to tell you something about Ryan that maybe you didn't know. <laughs> when Ryan was a senior in college, and he had his last semester, he had all his requirements done, he had to take one class. It didn't make any difference what he had to take. All he had to do was he had to require hours. So he didn't know what to take, so he asked around campus, what do I take, what do I take? And predominantly, the answer comes back over and over again, take zoology. The class is easy, the prof's a marshmallow, it is no problem, take the class. Ryan signs up. As you can imagine, he went there and found out there was a different prof. And the class wasn't as easy as he anticipated. Three days, three days into this class, they have blocks. And inside each block are drawn the legs of a particular bird. Nine different birds, not the beak, not the body, just nine different legs. And all they have to do is identify those nine birds. Ryan's like, you've got to be kidding me. And the more he looks at it, the more frustrated he gets. He takes the paper, he turns it over. No, it's not a trick or anything. He has to identify these nine birds. And he's sitting there thinking, I'm a senior. I have only to get this class to make a difference, whatever I take, and I've got to do this. And the longer Ryan sits there, the more frustrated he gets. Till finally he just kind of takes the paper, goes up to the prof's desk, half crumbles it, throws it on the desk, and begins to walk out. And before he gets to the door, the prof says, excuse me, young man, young man, and Ryan turns around, and he said, yeah? He said, you forgot to sign your paper. He said, what? He said, you forgot to sign your paper. I don't know who you are. Ryan says, who am I? Puts his book bag down, pulls his pants up, shows his legs, says, you tell me who I am. <laughs> you probably don't remember that, Ryan, do you? But that's all right. No matter who you are, there is always that time in life, and perhaps we continue to go through it, to figuring out, who am I? Who am I? How do I evolve? That identity crisis of trying to find that lifelong search. It's only human for everybody at some point in time or continuing through life to figure out, who am I? Who am I? How do I find myself? And if we stop right here and do nothing else this morning, church, I would tell you that regardless of your gender, race, education, and for the most part your age, you will never find yourself until you lose yourself in the love and grace of Jesus. That's identity. That's who you are. That's who I am. And that's what we process together. That's why we share life together. That's why we come and worship together. That's why we meet in community groups together. Because we encourage each other in that faith and we get lost in the love and grace of Jesus. This morning I want to walk us through perhaps a relatively familiar passage of Scripture. It's almost a precursor to a much more famous passage. And I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17 or your device, or whatever you have. And can I, because I'm the guest preacher, I can say a lot more than Jerry can say, um, because I'll be sitting down there the rest of the time. Can I encourage you in this day and age to bring your Bible or a device and don't just simply rely on the screen? It's good, and you can see it. But there's something about either writing in your Bible or looking and underlining in your device that you bring the Scripture into you. 
We need that. And so this morning, in just about six or seven verses, I want to look at this passage in 1 Kings 17 together. It's a small, short passage, but oh, it's full of truth and practical application. It's almost a passage that pretty much teaches itself, and I love when Scripture opens up and does that. And so as we look at 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll just break it down as we walk through the passage. Verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Stop there. First thing I want us to see is that Elijah spoke for God. Elijah spoke for God. Now, to understand that, we need to understand a little bit about Elijah. And to do that, let's kind of go back to the Old Testament. Hopefully you're aware that there were three offices in the Old Testament. There was prophet, priest, and king. We all pretty much know what a king did. But we sometimes get confused the difference between a prophet and a priest. A priest in the Old Testament represented the people to God. He brought the sacrifices of the people to God. That's why there was a high priest. That's why on the Day of Atonement, he was the only one to go allowed into the Holy of Holies, to go through that curtain which split at the crucifixion. He had to sprinkle the blood. He was constantly moving on during that time. That's the contrast of Jesus, our high priest in Hebrews, who rested. But this high priest had to be moving. Matter of fact, the people were so concerned that the high priest would move, they would attach a bell to him. They wanted to hear that sound. And they also tied a rope around him that if God was displeased and God killed him in the Holy of Holies, nobody wanted to go in and get him, and they would take that rope and literally have to pull the high priest out. That's what the priest did. He represented the people to God. The prophet did just the opposite. The prophet represented God to the people. Thus saith the Lord. Proclaim truth. And it was hard truth. Go through and read the prophets and you find out there weren't a lot of feel-good Hallmark cards in the prophets. <laughs> it was hard. And you begin to see sometimes and you track their lives and you'll find that their highs are high and their lows are low. But that was their task. They were to represent God to the people and that's Elijah. He's a spokesperson. His name meant the Lord, Yahweh, is our God. And he lived up to his name. That verse in verse 1 says he was a Tishbite from Tishbe, which is a rather hazardous area of rough terrain. And so Elijah, the best picture we have, is kind of a rough individual. Kind of rough around the edges. Rough character. And yet we know very little about him for being such a significant person in the Scripture. It's a trying time at this time when Elijah appears. It's a very interesting and difficult time in the divided kingdom. It's a time of kings. It's void of godly leadership. And we have the worship of false gods, particularly Baal. And who Elijah appears to is Ahab, the king. And if you want any indication of what kind of king Ahab was, you only have to go up a couple verses in chapter 16. 1 Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ouch. Ouch. And this is who Elijah appears before. Elijah provided a seldom heard voice from God at this time. 
And as you look at the passage, it is very abrupt. Elijah just appeared. How did this guy get an audience with the king? We don't know. He came in almost like a thunderbolt and an equally abrupt message to Ahab and perhaps Queen Jezebel who might have been there, whom he had never met. And yet, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. His message had no intro. It had no reason to be given. Elijah brazenly confronted Ahab with a message that sin was implied and no hint of mercy was going to be given. Nobody's volunteering for that job to make that proclamation. What is he saying? He's saying the Lord, the God of Israel, remember his name, the Lord Yahweh is our God, is versus Baal. This is who everybody worshipped because Ahab worshipped. This is Baal. Well, who was Baal? Well, it was to show the powerlessness of Baal versus the powerful almighty God of Israel. And so Elijah pronounces a drought in the land. Now, during that time, rain and dew accounted for most of the moisture, and the rainy season was pretty much October to March. Then dew off the mountains and the hot season condensed into heavy drizzle. That's where all the moisture came from. And Baal, he was not only the god of fertility, he was the god of the storm. Ooh. So now if there's no rain, there's no moisture, there's no precipitation, there's no God. That's what Elijah's proclaiming. He's proclaiming a direct challenge to Baal's deity. Elijah spoke for God. He was zealous for God in a godless society. He was convinced of his reality regardless. He was willing to stand up and speak for God. Elijah was not concerned about fitting in or being accepted. You see, for Elijah, it was never convenient nor comfortable to take a stand for God in his generation. You know what? It never is. It never is. As you and I continue through our lives and trying to find ourselves We find that we're blitzed of being able to fit in by we're being told what we should wear, what we should drive, what we should eat, what we should watch, what we should listen. Isn't it interesting that as we grew up in life that we thought when people were teenagers, that's when peer pressure was the greatest. Until we got older. Then we got the company line. It's the way we do things around here. All of a sudden, you and I are finding people giving us all kinds of information, all kinds of things that we are supposed to fit in, and we live in a generation screaming for answers, groping for reality and purpose, desperate for direction, searching to find themselves, and lost often in the abyss of social media and its influencers. I found that this week, that in the last decade, the number of people actively using social media has grown to 3.4 billion people, with a B. 
Now, to give a perspective of 3.4 billion people, that's 45% of the world's population. Hmm. And within social media, we have what we call influencers. Influencers that have reputation or popularity for knowledge, experience on specific topics in life. They create trends. They encourage their followers to follow. I know of situations where influencers have been invited to see something, attend something, so they could post it on their site, whether Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever else they do, so other people will like it and be exposed to it. Now, these influencers have thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of followers. But I'm not saying that you and I should be ignorant in the world we live in. This is not a condemnation on social media. That depends on you, your world, and what you live and how you communicate with people. We can't ignore social media altogether. Matter of fact, you and I can't be salt and light in a vacuum. So for many of you, social media is critical for what you do and how you live your life. But be aware. There's a huge difference about us being informed about our society rather than being conformed by our society. There's a big difference between being informed about our society and being conformed by our society. Those of us who've lost ourselves in the grace and love of Jesus need to take aware. And I'd give you no more biblical example than Lot. Go back sometime and read in Genesis when Abram and Lot split. And if you fast forward all the way to the end and you've got this incestual relationship with his daughters and him and how did they get there, you go back and you find out that first Lot moved near Sodom. Next time we find about him, he's living in Sodom. Third time he's sitting at the gate, he's an elected official. He got consumed in his society. He was conformed by it. You don't have to go long in the gospel of Jesus Christ to realize it's divisive. It's confrontational. We won't fit in, nor should we. But man, we need to have a heart for the people around us. Let's not bury ourselves in some kind of biblical bunker. But be concerned about people. We won't fit in, but yet the world still has questions, don't they? People are looking for answers. Elijah spoke for God. Do we? Do we? Remember this. You cannot impart what you don't possess. If you're going to speak for God, what is it you're going to say? Have you ever thought about what you believe? Not the person next to you. Not your friends. Not your parents. Not your spouse. Not the elders of this church. What is it that you believe and why? It's critical. Absolutely critical. What difference has Jesus made in your life? And can you answer when somebody asks you? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. Got something to say? We're not turning everybody into preachers, but we are turning us to be able to share naturally what God's done in our lives. 
We need to be able to do that. And sometimes, with the best intention, we're answering the questions nobody's asking. Let me give you an example. Happened a few years ago, but it's going to happen again, I can tell you, right after Thanksgiving. We're going to have Christians who are totally off their gourd. I don't know what that means, but I just said it. They're totally on their gourd because now all of a sudden we're into the Christmas season, but we have corporate America who won't say Merry Christmas, but they just say Happy Holidays. Who cares? Who cares? Really, who cares? Why are we expecting Christ-like behavior and Christ-less people? And I'm not downgrading anybody. I'm not pointing fingers at Walmart or Target or anybody else. That's not my point. But why are we upset about that? Why are we upset about somebody not saying Merry Christmas as opposed to being upset about they don't know the Christ of Christmas? That's the message. But all of a sudden, we're off and we're answering the questions nobody's asking. We need to speak for God, but we need to have something to say. Somebody once said, the steel of character is forged on the anvil of our times. Elijah's character was forged as he spoke for God. Move on. Secondly, Elijah met with God. Let's read verses 2 to 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. Elijah suddenly appears at Ahab, makes this proclamation, The drought's coming, nothing except by my word, because I serve the God of Israel. And just as quickly, he's gone. What? Just as quickly as he's gone. He left by the command of God, and it doesn't make sense. Wait a minute. He's just there. He's got, he's got a captivated audience. He's just getting started. He's got work to be done. He's got things to say. He's got more things to do. That doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. Let's remind ourselves that God is not Ill- illogical, but we are. When God does stuff that seems out of whack, all of a sudden we're thinking, what is wrong with God? He's so illogical. No, he's pure logic. You and I are the foul balls. We are. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so let's stop trying to put God in our box of what we think he should do. Okay, so then if that's the case, why would God want Elijah to leave? I got at least four possibilities. Number one, protection. So protection. Two, pressure. Remember, the call of the drought will not be ended until Elijah said, at my word. Let's not get pressured into responding or overreacting too quickly. So take the pressure off. Three, private. A location remote, not to be found, secluded. God wanted Elijah to get away. And fourthly, presence. To be alone with God. God uniquely met his needs there. Elijah was strengthened on all fronts, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually, and it was not just for what had happened, but for what's going to happen. And if you know what's going to happen in 1 Kings, you know he needs rest. Elijah found refuge, a sanctuary. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's always an acute need in all of us to be alone with God. 
there's always an acute need. To rest in his presence alone. To learn to be completely content exclusively with him. And Elijah and us of our need of him. To remind us that we need to be alone with him. That's why I threw in the notes, be aware of what I call the barrenness of busyness. The barrenness of busyness. We're caught up in doing so much. I read this week of a guy named Mark Reynolds, not related to me, but he is the founder and CEO of Barbell Logic. Love that phrase. And he said this, and I found this fascinating. He said, busy, busy has become and replaced the word good for when somebody asks us how we're doing. Think about it. Think about the times you've asked people how you're doing and how many times have you heard lately, busy? Busy. He said, we live in a a culture of constant urgency. His direct quote is, the problem is that most of us don't understand the difference between the urgent and the important. We just stay busy. We're consumed in activity, and activity means purpose. And don't dismiss that as simply people out there as opposed to us. Who we get busy, and sometimes we just call it ministry. That justifies it. I read this great quote from the right Reverend Nigel McCullough, Bishop of Wakefield, England. Boy, I would just like to have that title one time, wouldn't you? Whatever you say, it would sound good. Oh, well, he's the right Reverend Nigel McCullough, Bishop of Wakefield, England. It'd be tough to put on back on your jersey if you're an athlete. But And he said this. The ceaseless round of activity and constant stress, consequent stress, which so characterizes life today, may well be a significant reason why, for so many people, God appears to have little or no acknowledged significance in what they are or do. That's hardly surprising. The style in much of our current society militates against any inclination to be reflective. Indeed, much of what we're about seems to diametrically be opposed to the divine command echoed so memorably in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I'm God. As much as we complain about being busy, it's easier. The God of Psalm 46 was Elijah's God and he's our God. And so if he is still the same, then the need has not changed. And there is a need for you and I to be still before God. And so I began to ask myself and I ask you, why won't we be still before God? What's preventing us from doing that? Careful, these get a little uncomfortable. First one, self-sufficiency. I can handle it myself. You and I are bombarded with the heroic stories of self-made women and self-made men. I can do it. I got this. I can handle it. There's no real need. There's no perceived need to be still. I got to keep moving, move toward my goals. Again, I got to find myself. And if or when I get into trouble, I know where to find them. Self-sufficiency. Why else won't I be still before God? This one hurts. Lack of priority. It's just not that important. Ouch. It's not important enough. 
Have you noticed that for the most part, you and I always have time in our schedule to do what we want to do? Whether it's watch a show, go to a game, read a book, whatever it is, no matter how busy it is, somehow we can carve out time for that. And we know who gets cut out. Why won't I be still before God? Self-sufficiency, lack of priority, fear. Fear. We're afraid to be alone with God. Because we don't know what to say or do. Silence could be deafening. I'm uncomfortable because I don't really know him. And here's the kicker. I'm afraid if I'm alone with God. I'm afraid of what he's going to ask me to do. This time that Elijah was alone with God was memorable. I'm convinced that later on in his life, he looked back on this special time with him and God and the brook. This special place, the unique food that was provided by the ravens. At this time, and now this will change, but at this time, Elijah did not fear Ahab the king because he knew and spent time with the king of kings. That's what we need to do. Elijah spoke for God. Elijah met with God. Thirdly, look at verses 5 and 6. Elijah trusted God. Verse 5. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Elijah trusted God. The whole passage pivots on verse 5. So he did what the Lord had told him. For those of us that are old enough to remember, not too many years ago, there was a company called Tombstone Pizza. I don't know if they exist now anymore. But their tagline was, what do you want on your tombstone? What is, what do you want on your top, what toppings do you want on your tombstone? Let's take that the other way. What do you want on your tombstone, your gravestone? I say, wouldn't it be great if we all could be put on, so he or she did what the Lord had told them. So he or she did what the Lord told him. Nothing more, nothing less. Just did that. See, the measuring stick of faith and love is obedience. Always has been, always will be. And for those of us that are old enough and probably remember the flood with Noah, the church we remember singing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Hmm. This is what we're to do. A couple weeks ago, Pete shared with us out of John chapter 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And after that, he goes through and teaches them the idea of serving. And at the end of that, John 13, 17, it's Jesus that says to his disciples, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. That's a great verse. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Act on what you know. For Elijah to leave Ahab took just as much faith as to appear before him, but he did it. See, you and I get stuck and we start begin treading water spiritually. We're not making any ground because we contemplate over what we can't believe rather than acting on what we do believe. Stop trying to dot every I and cross every T in your theology and your relationship with Christ. I'm not saying don't learn. 
But don't let that get stymied. You will never, you will never, you will never figure God out completely. Because if you did, you don't need him. And we need him. Elijah was faithful regardless. It was illogical to appear before Ahab and give that message, then leave. It was confusing to go to such a desolate location. It didn't make sense to be fed by ravens and drink by the brook. And you know what I found out? Ravens don't even feed their own children. But God had the ravens come and feed Elijah. He did it all because it's precisely as God told him. God met him there. It's not unusual for God to require the unusual. SOP, standard operating procedure. That's God. It's not unusual for God to require the unusual. Well, what do you mean? Take a little quick view through what you know of the Bible. Unusual requests that God made. Battle of Jericho. Noah's Ark. Gideon and the soldiers. Required people of God to trust God and not the circumstance. It's not unusual for God to request the unusual. Who did God use? God used farmers. He used fishermen. He used harlots. He used tax collectors. He used people of all ages. And what did he use? God used slingshots and water pitchers and trumpets and sound of human voices and jawbone of a donkey, even a boy's lunch. That's God. And incredibly, he wants to use you and me. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Do you believe that God wants to use you? Put everything away. Do you believe that God wants to use you? Not everybody else. You. And secondly, do you want to be used by God? Be careful how you answer that question. (laughs) Elijah spoke for God. He met with God. He trusted God. I think it's a great story. You got six verses. It fits nicely. It's a nice message. It's all a great story of faith and obedience. Good grief as a preacher. It's got three points. We're good. He, he, He spoke for God. He met with God. He trusted God. It's all good. And then you get to verse seven. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What? The brook dried up. No, 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 no. This is the brook provided by God. This man of God who spoke for God, who was used by God, then sent by God to a brook provided by God, it dries up? Yeah. Yeah. You see, the God-given brook dries up is as part of the plan of God. We don't like that. That doesn't fit our box for God. The brook. It was a companion to Elijah in a desolate place. It was proof or provision of God's favor. He drank more than water from that brook, even though he probably cleansed himself, rinsed his face off, washed his feet, and everything else. He drank living water that refreshed his spirit. It quenched his dry heart. He drank in the presence of God, and now it dries up. Yeah. And the dried up brook now creates a drinking problem. How could this happen? Why did this happen? 
Let's pull some false thinking aside. The brook drying up was not due to God punishing Elijah. There's no indication of the passage. Matter of fact, verse 5 we just read that he did what God told him would counter that. Therefore, be very cautious in making judgments of God's punishment on you or somebody else when their brook dried up. Don't put God in that box. Be very careful of you think that that might be punishment on you or somebody else. Well, it's also that God didn't forget Elijah. He was not overlooked, nor are we. God knows our name. He knows us by voice. He knows us by the number of hairs on our head, and some of us are changing daily. (laughs) He knows that. He hadn't confused you with anybody else. There are certainly times we forget about him, but it's not the other way. And the brook didn't dry up because God stopped loving Elijah. We reject, we wound, we rebel, we gripe at God, but we're impotent to stop the love of God. Go read Romans 8 again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. I tell, I tell my grandsons this. I say, guys, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you will ever do to make him love you less. That makes sense, but that's God. So if it's not that, why did the brook dry up? Two thoughts. Number one, the corporate consequence of sin. The nation was led by Ahab, and they worshiped Baal. And so because of that, that was the collateral damage of sin that even went to Elijah, who followed God. Do not ever forget and think that your sin only affects you. That's the enemy talking. And there are people after people in this room this morning who will talk about that they've experienced collateral damage because of somebody else's sin. That's what's going on here. Your sin is not always just about you. It's not always just about me. Why did the broker dry up? I think the second one is an answered prayer of Elijah. James 5, 17 and 18 says, Elijah was a human being, and even as we are, He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced the crops. Is that up there? Can you you guys go back one slide with that? Uh, Yeah. And what does it say? He was a human being, even as we are, and he prayed how? How? Does that name, does that word sound familiar? Remember Jay last week, he used that same word when he started talking about in in Acts chapter 12 and he said the church was praying for Peter and they prayed earnestly and he reminded us that that went consistent and agonized. He related to Jesus in the garden. Elijah prayed that way, desperate and diligent. I'm convinced that dry brooks will lead to people praying earnestly. God takes prayer very seriously, do we? There's a great story about there was a drought in the Midwest. And in this community, the farmers all decided to get together and have a prayer meeting. And so they were going to gather at the local church. And one of the farmers thought it would be a great learning time for his eight-year-old son. And he took him along. So they had the prayer meeting. When they went out, the eight-year-old son looked at the dad and said, Dad, I have a question. He said, sure. He said, the farmers all gathered to pray. He said, yes. And the farmers all gathered to pray to ask God for rain. He said, yes. And the little boy said, 
then how come nobody brought an umbrella? God takes prayer seriously, do we? Do we? God was revealing his purpose and his plan through a dried up brook. We might not see it. We might not like it. We might not agree with it, but that's God's plan. God's plans are not designed for our comfort, but for our commitment. We want comfort. God's plans are not designed for convenience, but for our conviction. What are your convictions? Remember hearing sometime when a person said, beliefs are what a person holds. Convictions are what holds a person. Beliefs are what a person holds. Convictions are what holds a person. God's plans aren't designed for our convenience, but our conviction. The man or woman of God will be called to dry brooks, and they will dry up right before your eyes. The God who provides can also take it away, and this is not a sign of punishment, but a sign of purpose. We think once he gives it, he has no right to take it back, but he does. Job 121 says, and if anybody knew about giving and taking, it's Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. There are those of us here this morning who have sat by a flowing brook given by God and watched it dry up. Those who have been given by God a mate, a child, One of the hardest things I ever had to do in pastoral ministry is I had to perform a funeral. And so we drove to the cemetery and we went past the manicured lawns and we went past the assortment of flower arrangements and the variety of gravestones and so forth. You make a turn in this cemetery and it's not too far from here and all of a sudden instead of seeing more floor arrangements you see balloons and you see stuffed animals and that's where children are buried. And I had to perform this funeral for this couple who lost their baby at childbirth. It was one of the hardest things I ever, ever had to do. One year later, almost to the day, I'm back at the same cemetery, the same place, creating the same funeral for the same family. There are dry brooks. It's one thing to speak for God. It's one thing to meet with God and even trust God. But being tested by God by a dry brook creates a drinking problem. It's here at those dry brooks we thirst for the brook to flow again. I'm nine years old. My father dies in an automobile accident. I know less about death than I did about God. And I'm lost and wondering, and I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, but one day I prayed out of anger, God, if you can bring your son back from the dead, bring my dad back. When we thirst for brooks to flow again. We have a drinking problem with dry brooks. We're so parched, we can't even swallow at times. We're spiritually dehydrated, and that's where our faith is tried and purified. He's not punishing you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't stopped loving you, but there are dry brooks. I close with this, and you might even know this story. 
It's a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a believer, a lawyer in the mid-1800s. Some months prior to the Chicago fire in 1871, he had vested heavily in real estate on the shore of Lake Michigan, and it was wiped out completely. But he trusted God. He was faithful. He, he decided to follow evangelists like D.L. Moody. But not long before that devastating fire, he had lost a son. Finally, it just seemed like the pressure was so much. And so he said to his wife, let's get on a ship and go to England. We'll follow D.L. Moody. We'll support him in his crusades. And so it was to be he and his wife and his four daughters to board that ship. And just before they were to leave, Horatio Spafford had to be called back because of business. And so the wife and four daughters went on. As they crossed the Atlantic, their boat crashed to another ship and it sank in 12 minutes. The survivors finally got to Wales and they cabled their family back. And it was Mrs. Spafford who related to her husband and her words were this. Saved. Saved alone. Spafford immediately tried to get on the next ship, and as he went across the Atlantic, he said to the captain, when you come to the place where you think this horrible accident happened, will you tell me? And the captain did. And Spafford came up on board, and as he looked out on the ocean and thought of all that had taken place not that many days before, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Some of us are going through things right now and it's not well with our soul. There is only one that you can get lost in, his love and grace. Don't miss this opportunity this morning to go to him. Maybe come afterwards and pray with the elders. And if you're here this morning, no matter this is the first day you've ever been here or you've been here for 10 years, but it's never been well with your soul because you never took to heart the love and grace of Jesus, don't let today escape. Take advantage of your dry brook and let him replenish you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, there are so many things that we kind of like about the passage. We're really kind of excited about. Here's this guy, Elijah, and he chooses to pray and chooses to stand up and speak for you. And you met him and all that kind of thing. And we get encouraged by that. We can learn from that. And we're grateful for that. But the dry brooks is not one that excites us. Lord, help us to accept and take you and love you with everything that comes. Forgive us when we try to put you in our box. When we think we know best. Lord, may it be as it was with Elijah. So he did what the Lord had told him. May that be true of us. We're faithful. We're obedient. Because of you. And you are the one who meets us where we are. So we can say with all authenticity. It is well. It's well with my soul. Lord, we pray it for our sake and in your name. Amen.